This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down, business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson, and on September 29, we have episode number 106. Well, just ahead, breaking the buck, Dollar Tree says stuff's going to cost more than a dollar. Plus, a natural gas price surge as one company selling a pile of stock. And using machine learning to improve cybersecurity, CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz, one of the biggest CEOs we've ever had, Joins us today, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with Era. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And we would love to hear about where you are listening to The Drill Down. Let us know how The Drill Down fits into your daily routine. Is it the dog walk? Is it the commute? Is it in the shower? Is it... Walking around the house, listening on your smart speaker, let us know. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind Stocks and Move. And we've got the three most important developments in the world of business today with Isaac Webster, our executive producer. Corey, let's start with the Fed. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said that a recent spell of higher inflation might last longer than central bank officials had anticipated. Inflation has soared this year with so-called core prices that exclude volatile food and energy categories up 3.6% in July from a year earlier, and that's using the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation. In other words, they're listening to our show where every company is talking about inflation, <laughs> yeah. including the stories <laughs> we've got coming up in a minute. We've got a, we, have, we have, to me, the best, the singular best inflation story ever. That's going to wait until the second most important story in the world of, of business today. That was a really good tease, though. I love that. Uh, let's move on to Google. Google is trying to play catch up with Amazon, at least in terms of e-commerce ad dollars. In its latest strategy shift, Google is updating the look and format of product search pages to feature images of apparel and accessories uh, that, to better resemble a digital store rather than a long list of links and text. The change is part of a broader overhaul Google has undertaken during the pandemic to enliven its e-commerce operation. So funny that a company I think has generally not great design, with some exceptions, had such great success with this simple, simple design of their initial web page. They're now changing that. They got to keep up with the times. Do they? And then let's move on. I don't to know if I agree with that. I'm not signing on with that. Okay. What well, would you prefer to stay? Stay as they is? could screw it up. I don't know. Well, yeah. What they had was working. We'll see what happens. Um, well, the thing is, Amazon's doing much better, right? Amazon's not even that they need to change it up. Uh, let's move on to Evergrande. 
Struggling Chinese real estate developer Evergrande said it was selling a stake in its Shenzhen Bank for about $1.5 billion. Now, the proceeds are going to go toward paying down its debts. As you may know, Evergrande has unpaid bills totaling more than $300 billion and missing an interest payment on a U.S. dollar bond last week. It, had an, it has another $45 million payment on an international bond due this week. Evergrande has yet to address either payment publicly, and it does have a 30-day grace period before a mispayment results in an actual default. So we're still in this grace period moment here with Evergrande. The real estate borrower owns a bank? A stake in that bank, yeah. That's worrisome. <laughs> Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree. Dollar Tree trades under DLTR. Shares jumped 16% today, and they've risen almost 12% in a year. What's going on with Dollar Tree today? Which isn't great, right? Where we've got uh, stock, you know, the S&P 500 is up 31% in a year. Dollar Tree vastly underperforming that despite today's move. Mm-hmm. Why today's move? With hope that the company will make money. How could they make more money? Because Dollar Tree is going to sell stuff for more than a dollar. <gasps> That's how bad inflation is. Oh, poor things. Yeah. So Dollar Tree um, has, they've has, they've got a bunch of stores and they've got stores under different names, but they have uh, their combo stores and their Dollar Tree Plus stores. And those, uh, they've been testing a bigger than a dollar format. They say they've had some success. So there's going to be more than a dollar now. We'll be selling stuff across the Dollar Tree Plus stores. Um, they said they were, and they're going to start moving it into some uh, select legacy Dollar Tree stores. Uh, their newest format, the combination store, has had multi-price assortment, as the company likes to say, for a couple of years. They've got 105 of those combo stores. Now, uh, the, that combo store has seen terrific growth, 20% same-store sales growth. So they think they've got room there. They think they've got a concept there. But I would say Dollar Tree is a pretty simple concept. Stuff costs yeah. a dollar or less. Once it's kind of, kind of like sort of, yeah, no more a dollar or less. Now it's because more than a dollar is a lot. It's either under a dollar or it's not. They're breaking their cardinal. I mean, what's the cardinal rule of Dollar Tree? Okay, but uh, to be fair here, did you really think everything was just a dollar at a Dollar Tree? It was. <laughs> a while ago, but like, I don't know. These, I, maybe I've only been to one of these combo stores, but anytime I've ever gone into a Dollar Tree or a 99 cent store, one of their competitors, you know, um, there's stuff that's more than a buck. Well, inflation is breaking the, the cardinal rule of Dollar Tree now. And the biggest problem with inflation, of course, for them is shipping. They just can't get the stuff they want to sell at those low costs. They've got to break the buck. Because they can't shrink the size of what they're selling, I guess. They've got to stand or get back to under a dollar, get over a dollar because of the cost of shipping. You know, other retailers like Urban Outfitters and so on, they've told us they're using air freight to get the most important products to stores in times of holidays. But uh, CEO Michael Witsinski, even in the last conference call, was saying at their price point, you know, they were having problems because air freight just wouldn't get it done. You know, at a, at a dollar price point, unfortunately, air freight just is cost prohibitive and and there really isn't that much of it available out there. So our teams are our global supply team. We got a sourcing team that's over there working with our merchants and we're working with the logistics team. Those three are working hard to pick the right source and prioritize the right product based on inventory needs, 
margin and seasonality. Um, and and just as an example on the uh, switching uh, to different sources domestically, you know, our team saw this problem and we wanted to be right for back to school. So we very quickly shifted both the family dollar and Dollar Tree to procure product for the back to school season here domestically so that we could have it on the shelves and drive that important season for us. But that's that's obviously not working for them for the holidays. They're going to have to go over a dollar just to try to make up for some of those extra expenses and try to show some profits. But uh, I think it's the best inflation story ever for 2021. It's so, you know, it's a, it's a Carson routine, right? Huh? Inflation's really so bad. How bad is it, Johnny? Dollar Tree is selling stuff for more than a dollar. But I'm bumped. That's when we need that sound effect. There you go. <laughs> Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at EQT. EQT trades under EQT. Shares fell 6% today, but they've gained 63% since the start of the year. What's going on with EQT? So EQT is an oil and gas. It's really an oil, a gas company. Uh, it's got um, uh, operations um, in lots of different places. But interestingly, uh, well, Isaac, do you know my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter asked me this the other day, Dad, do you know where the first oil was discovered in America? She obviously knew and wondered if I knew. Uh-huh. Do you know, Isaac? I know it's uh, Pennsylvania, right? With That's, the Rockefellers? I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Uh, Titusville okay. was the town. And yes, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, yeah, correct. And so uh, EQT uh, is, in fact, a Pennsylvania-based driller. And they um, uh, they are focused very much on gas. That, that area is now known as the Marcellusville Shale. It's a shale formation. They've been able to do horizontal drilling in Pennsylvania, not in New York. It's illegal in New York to do fracking, but they can do it in Pennsylvania, and they're finding lots of uh, natural gas there, um, which has been great for the local economy, or at least good for the local economy, um, in spite of low natural gas prices. Well, natural gas prices aren't low anymore. We have hit uh, five-year highs in the last week. And so this company, which has uh, an $8 billion uh, market cap, um, uh, you know, it's a real player there. They, they've they grown through acquisition, and in part, they did a big acquisition acquiring some properties from Blackstone um, uh, recently uh, in a company, the Blackstone company is called Alta Resources. So they paid uh, cash and stock for Alta. They paid a billion dollars in cash and issued a bunch of shares. Well, now a bunch of those shares, at least about a quarter of them are coming to the market, 26 million shares being sold today uh, by EQT, Pricing it below where the stock had been trading. So pricing the stock, it was about a $23 stock yesterday. Now it's a, uh, they sold it for $20. Bucks. Um, underwriters have an option to get in on it. EQT is not selling any shares of its own stock, but indeed it, it, these are it's helping to uh, make the sale for the former Alta shareholders. Again, 26 million shares of that. But uh, I think it's really interesting how this company, how they're running this company, Toby Rice, the CEO, talked about making kind of long-term plans, hoping for more profitable wells over the long term, not just trying to jack some wells out and crank some gas out when prices get high, but really try to build a, a sustainable business. Here's Toby Rice. Um, you know, I think I think this is an interesting you know situation that a lot that a lot of people in industry are looking at right now. And you know, while you do see you know short term price signal, which is encouraging, and um, you know people can look in adding activity levels to maybe get a little bit uh, better return uh, on a on a incremental uh, small amount of dollars. And I think that people, you know, know how that, that plays out. Um, 
you know, when, when you chase short, shorter term price signals. And I think you compare that versus, you know, the, the long-term value opportunity is getting our assets valued uh, at, a, at, a, at a gas price that's, that's, you know, north of $3. And when you compare the short-term gains you can get from accelerated activity or compared to the, the, the alternative, um, you know, we'll choose the alternative. And, and we, we think that, you know, we've been, been encouraged to see others in industry remain disciplined because I think they recognize um, the error that we're in and, and what's the best way to return or to return capital to shareholders and also maximize the value creation of, of our assets. So not cranking on a lot of new wells, but uh, maybe they wish they were right now at that very high price, but it did let them sell some stock and get out of that situation. You know, importantly, the company has had a lot of debt that they've been talking about uh, paying down. I mentioned the $8 billion market cap. It's got a, a $14 billion uh, enterprise value. So a lot of debt on top of what was left of their cash, about $330 million in cash at the end of last quarter. Um, surely they're doing a little bit better. We, it's, it's, you know, you always wonder how much these companies are going to make, even when prices are surging because they hedge so much of this doesn't look like these guys were massively hedged, so they will be catching some upside uh, from these prices. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at a company called Lightspeed Commerce. Lightspeed Commerce. I'm not familiar with this company. LSPD is its ticker symbol. Shares fell 12% today, but they've gained 211% in a year. So tell me about Lightspeed. Well, Lightspeed, like a company we talked about yesterday, was the subject of an unfavorable report by Spruce Point Capital, a company that uh, sells stock short. Lightspeed, you may not be familiar with, but it's a big company. It's about a $17 billion valuation on this company. They sell point-of-purchase displays. They sell essentially fancy cash registers. Now, Spruce Point uh, put out a report, a long report of over 100 pages, uh, was, well, it was 100 pages of PowerPoint slides, so take from that what you will in terms of its depth. I found it to be um, uh, really a fun read at the very least. Um, they came out guns a-blazing, not exactly saying, even not saying at all that there's accounting fraud, but they suggested that things aren't great at this company, also suggesting that Lightspeed has, over time, uh, overemphasized their market potential. Uh, whether it was the size of their business, the growth of their business, even some of the numbers, um, citing that the CFO had worked at a company called Descartes Systems that had, was a troubled software roll-up, suggesting that these guys are also rolling up a lot of businesses where it's hard to tell what's organic and what's not organic. One of the most interesting parts of the report to me was the discussion about how many customers this company had and whether those company customers were really customers or not. Um, uh, one of the sort of most bizarre things that they did, which was just wonderful, and I, I did go back and check their work. They went back and used a, a – do you know the Wayback Machine, Isaac? The Wayback Machine, you can search for stuff on the Internet uh, from websites from uh, days of yore. So you can look at a website for what a website looked like in 2019. You can look at what the same website looked like in 2020. You can look at what some websites looked like in 1996. Well, these guys went back and looked at investor presentations from 2019, from 2018, um, and then they compared certain numbers. And among other things, they found that the, the dollar value of customer transactions in three different presentations over three years, again, all talking about the, the results uh, from a singular year. So that singular year had $6 billion in transactions a year later. That singular year, no, it had $7.3 billion. You know, it was $7.5 billion. 
And I did go back in the Wayback Machine and looked at all this. And indeed, those investor presentations did change over time, jacking up the number for the same year. Again, who knows what's behind this? But for Spruce Point, it was reason to be short the stock, uh, a situation that was a little bit better. Also, it's worth noting the stock was down the last couple of days as well. So I went to the most recent conference call and listened to the CEO uh, to kind of get a sense of what they had to say about their customers and what was happening to their customers. And indeed, you know, they're trying to position this in some ways as a comparison to um, Shopify. Shopify, which creates online stores and has been moving to or uh, to offline and, and bricks and mortar, they're saying, hey, these guys can go from bricks and mortar to online and that maybe the uh, the the uh, reopening after COVID will be good for them. Here's CEO Dax De Silva. Uh, you know, we are seeing the the, the reopenings uh, really benefit our customers and 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 over our overall business as a result. Uh, we saw s- strong new customer additions uh, in in Q1, um, and uh, and probably the lowest churn uh, that we've ever seen uh, as as businesses really start to. Um, to reopen and uh, and also to engaging uh, new modules with their existing customers. Uh, we're seeing very strong GTV transaction volume, performance and hospitality, which is something that we've uh, we've been waiting waiting to see those customers really be able to to, to experience the reopening. So we saw that uh, very strongly in, uh, in in EMEA, where we have a lot of our a lot of our hospitality customers, um, and uh, and you know a lot of those 10,000 customer additions in the quarter they were assisted by customers turning the service back on after months of going dark, especially in EMEA. So that's uh, that's been a very positive thing that we've seen in a lot of our customer base. So again, old customers just turning on their machines are being counted as customers again. Uh, whatever has got the, going on with this company, they're going to be a, the entire uh, entirety of Wall Street is going to take a closer, more skeptical look now that this report is out, looking at exactly what their numbers are and seeing that some of the numbers uh, counting the same thing have gotten bigger over time on a historical basis. And we'll definitely be inviting the CEO, Lightspeed CEO, on our program uh, at his early its convenience to talk about this. Yeah, I've sent an email. Uh, didn't give enough time to come on, so I'm not going to hold that against him. But uh, they are invited on. The, we've already invited them on the show. And uh, that invitation's open. All right, coming up, our guest, the big daddy of Internet security, CrowdStrike CEO George Kurtz joins us. This guy's already made hundreds of millions of dollars in CrowdStrike personally. So what is it about the business that has him hanging on for more? We're going to find out more right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. And the Drill Down is brought to you by Indeed. When you pay for a job site, you should know what you're getting. Get Indeed and pay for quality candidates, only quality candidates, who meet the must-have requirements for your business. Don't just hope for the perfect candidate. Indeed's hiring tools will help you cut through the noise and hire faster and smarter. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skill tests to make sure you're finding applications from the people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined, and one and a half times more hires than even internal referrals. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who use Indeed to hire talent, great talent, fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade their job post at Indeed.com slash drill down. That's right, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash drill down. 
That's indeed.com slash drill.isaac. It's only valid through September 30. Clock's ticking, baby. Better hurry. Terms and conditions apply. All right, as promised right now, we're joined at the Drill Down Podcast by George Kurtz, the founder and CEO of CrowdStrike, one of the, the alphabet soup of companies in the world of cybersecurity. But truly, this company is a giant in that industry. George, how do you, uh, when people are trying to understand the place that CrowdStrike is among so many companies that offer cybersecurity, how, how do you try to explain that at a, at a uh, uh, when you're bragging? Well, a big part of what we do is uh, is help stop breaches. And as I always like to say, we're the, the sales force of security. And that was a big part of starting the company is when you looked at what was out there from a a Salesforce, a Workday, a ServiceNow perspective. There really was no platform company in security, and I thought CrowdStrike could be it. So um, our focus is on the endpoints and workloads and making sure that we can protect those from advanced attackers and adversaries and malware and lots of other bad things that happen, and to do that in a very efficient way that ultimately stops breaches. So that's our value prop to our customers, and uh, I think we've, uh, we've done pretty well in keeping customers happy and uh, keeping them safe. What is endpoint detection or in detection and response, right? That's kind of your specialty. Yeah, well, if, uh, if we think about your computer, you know, you may be on a Mac, Windows computer, Linux, or what have you, even a mobile device. Obviously, there is uh, an operating system, there's applications, and the adversaries, you know, bad folks uh, like to take advantage of, of weaknesses in those. Uh, it could be through malware, it could be through uh, compromising of passwords or credentials. And uh, essentially, there's two elements to it. One is a next generation uh, AV product or antivirus product using AI to detect threats that have never been seen. And the other part is um, what I would call DVR for your, your endpoint or your computer. And, just looking at threats, nothing, nothing that's uh, private, um, but the combination of two of those two with our cloud technology uh, and and analytics um, allows us to actually see and stop breaches that have never been seen before, um, and that's really important for customers because if you are a Mac, if you're a Semantic customer, you might be used to scanning all of your files, looking for things that are bad, but in order to do that, you first have to see them in the wild and you have to create a catalog or a database of those attacks, and then you have to look for them. And um, our technology is different because we've looked at all of the attacks and the bad things that have happened, the bad files, and then we've created artificial intelligence models around those so that when we see something new, we can mathematically predict whether it's going to be good or bad, as an example. I've promised our listeners when anyone says artificial intelligence in this show, I'm gonna call bullshit. And at least push back and say, explain sure. what you mean by that. And there, there's already a sense that it's true because well, the first thing I hear when they use that term incorrectly or, or, or uh, uh, bodaciously mm-hmm. is the combination of machine learning and artificial intelligence in the same sentence. But what do you mean by artificial intelligence? What's happening there that doesn't have kind of a human control on it? Well, what happens underneath the covers is that we've literally looked at billions and billions of pieces of malware and attacks, uh, the behaviors of those attacks, and we've deconstructed those into, uh, you know, call it five million different data points, right, just as, a, as an example. And then we compute mathematically the probability that something new actually looks like something we've seen before that we've trained as as bad and um it, it's very similar there, there was um there's kind of a, like when you first start in in the ai world there's 
um, characteristics of, of male and females that, you know, you look at, you know, how high, uh, how tall people are, Adam's apple, you know, all kinds of things, but there's only a few different characteristics and allows you to figure out whether it's a male or female. And that's very easy. But when you look at malware, there's millions of these different data points. So we've plotted those millions of data points and then we continually train what's good and what's bad. And then mathematically, we just come up with a percentage. So if we see a file that looks bad, we might say, hey, we think there's a 90% probability it's bad based upon all of the other bad files that we've seen in the past. And that's that's the simple version behind what happens, you know, behind uh, the scenes yeah. of what happens. That's super interesting. Are the are the vectors that you compare it to changing a lot? What's what's new in you know? For example, uh, in your conference calls, in your public filings, you guys have talked a lot about ransomware. But for a mm. long time now, I get the sense, however, that ransomware right now is really different than it was even a year ago. And I wonder if part of that is some of the sort of the sort of vectors that you compare ran, current ransomware, new ransomware attacks to old ones. Um, that, that's true. And the, the vectors are, are really different in a few areas. One is the, the actual setup of the attack. So in prior years, going a few years back, maybe three, four years ago, you would have what we call spray and pray. And that is a bunch of emails go out spamming people. They click on a link, they get infected, they get encrypted, and they pay their $300 in, in Bitcoin. Um, in today's environment, it's much different. It's called big game hunting. And that's really where an adversary gets access to an organization. And instead of encrypting one machine, they basically look like a nation state actor and they plant the malware across an entire environment. That's number one. Number two is they actually steal data. Um, and I'll tell you why that's important here in a minute. And, and number three is they encrypt it. So in one fell swoop, instead of uh, randomly getting $300, they can get, you know, on average $6 million from a company. Now, if your IT department says, hey, uh, it's a good thing we backed everything up, we're just going to restore from our backups, and not pay the e-crime uh, actors, then they move into extortionware mode. Remember, they stole the data that I just mentioned. And what they'll do is they'll basically say, you know, either pay us and get your, your files unencrypted, or we're just going to dump the private data that we found on a, on a leak site and if you want us to not do that, you still need to pay us the six million bucks. That's wild. I, I, it was a much earlier attack, but I remember the Sony attack was really damaging to that company and the executives of that company. I think the CEO ended up losing her job, not because they got hacked, but because of the things that she'd said in some emails that they didn't want out and it made her look so bad in Hollywood. It was tough for her to conduct business anymore. And that's a big part of what we're, we're hearing from boards of directors. Uh, in the last two months, I probably have done more board briefings and audit committee briefings than I have in two years. And a lot of it is around the resiliency of the organization. Yeah, you said that in the last conference call. I thought that was, I'm sorry to interrupt, we, we, we played that, that soundbite from you from the last conference call. I thought that was really fascinating that this, is, this was kind of at the board level for, for a while, but is really front and center now. It's front and center. When you look at the pipeline attacks, you look at the, the you know, supply chain attacks, the, the, you know, meat processing, I mean, go down the industries, um, government attacks, uh, it, it's all coming to the forefront. And while boards were very concerned about it, they're really now asking the question, hey, could we could we have a resiliency problem uh, that impacts our ability to actually operate as a business? And, you know, in years past, it was annoying. You got your computer infected. You had to return it back to the IT team. They repair it or re-image it and you'd move on. And now it's much different. It's, you know, could we, could we take down our entire operation or more importantly, could we actually extend this compromise to our customers, which 
adds a tremendous amount of liability and risk. And that that is really one of the areas that the board's home in on. Hey, we're we're doing business with so many different companies. We've got this very dynamic supply chain and third parties that connect into us. What happens if we get encrypted and then take down one of our partners? You know, what does that liability and exposure look like? So those are all the things that boards are grappling with today. And that's really why ransomware is has popped to the top of the list uh, from a risk perspective. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, you already had a lot of these customers. They, well, so on, on a sort of macro trend, right, companies are more digital than ever before. They might have thought they were really digital in 2019, but in 2021, there isn't a company in the world that isn't more digital, more online than it ever was before. But I wonder more so, you know, you've got, you know, damn near half the Fortune 500 as customers. So how does their spending change once they've elevated their concern about this risk, they were already there, they were already customers. How does that spending change? Well, the spending typically changes if they're already a customer where they buy more modules. And that's one of the things that I've talked about on the conference calls. Uh, you know, 60% of our customers um, you know, have four or more modules, which is, which is pretty remarkable. So they tend to buy more um, because it's not just about antivirus. It's not just about endpoint detection response. It's about vulnerability management, threat intelligence. Um, you know, device control, um, the whole 19 modules we have, we started with one. So they can pick and choose and expand, which drives our, our net retention rates. Uh, but then also they can expand their coverage. So not only are we protecting their workloads, uh, sorry, their uh, workstations and, and servers that are more physical um, in an office that you might typically, you know, see, but we also now are protecting their cloud workloads. And as they go through that digital transformation process, the proliferation of cloud workloads and containers is just exploding. And that's typically how they'll, they'll spend more with us, buy more modules and also expand the, the coverage and what we actually protect. How do you decide what modules to add and, and where to kind of what, what defines a, a feature within a module and a whole new module itself? Well, we have this really sophisticated and complicated process and it typically involves with, uh, it starts with, we just ask the customer. You know, it's amazing what happens when you when you ask the customer and you say, what are you looking for? What do you need? What are your problems? And then we prioritize it. And we started with one. We, we knew, uh, you know, endpoint detection response and, and uh, antivirus were, were big areas to replace MacMe and Symantec. But after that, it was what do customers need? They were they were having troubles with identification of vulnerabilities on their systems. Every every Tuesday, once a month, Microsoft comes out with a, a litany of new patches and vulnerabilities that are associated with those. Companies need to figure that out, prioritize what's important, how to fix it, just as an example. So we, we the, the whole business model we have is collect data one time, reuse it many for our modules like Salesforce. And we just ask people, well, what's the next thing you want us to build? And do, is there a market for it? And do you have budget? And is there a real problem? And that's how we prioritize it. So you were once one of the struggling new companies in the world of cybersecurity with some neat solutions that were doing well. Now you're the, the, the big daddy uh, out there. I mean... I was struck by, um, in the last uh, Palo Alto Networks conference call, Renakesh Aurora, the CEO of Palo Alto Networks, was saying, hey, look, these guys have eight times more sales salespeople than we do. What do you expect? I think he said eight to one was the ratio we put out there. Whether or not the number is accurate or not is so, not so important to me. But I wonder from your perspective, having been there from the start, wh what are your, how is the job different? How are the responsibilities different when you're the industry leader in this important arena and when you do have the opportunities to uh, get a lot of customers a lot faster than some of your competitors. Well, I certainly, uh, you know, appreciate the, the commentary there. And I think uh, there's there's an old German saying, you know, with many enemies comes much honor. And, uh, 
I think it's uh, one of those, you know, we, we've got a lot of folks that are looking at us and, and trying to knock us off the hill as as a leader in the space. And, um, you know, that's just something that we've got to live with. But I think it makes us more competitive and ultimately it drives better outcomes for customers with that level of competition. So we don't shy away from it. And we realize that there's a lot of folks that, you know, are gunning for us. But um, as long as we keep our heads down and we keep driving innovation, which is a core part of our culture and philosophy, uh, and we stick to our knitting. You know, we're not a network company. We're not a firewall company. We're not a whole bunch of things. We really want to be the best endpoint workload protection company on the planet. And there's a massive TAM for that. And if we do that, I think we're going to be really successful. And your deals are closing fast. I mean, you've talked about that as well as how quickly you close even seven figure deals that those aren't, you know, multi quarter, lots of sales meetings, lots of board meetings, lots of phone calls. Those deals start and get signed real quick. They do. Um, and, you know, certainly some of them take longer as, as people go through the process, but there's a lot of them that get done really quickly. And uh, I think people understand that there is a burning need for um, getting this technology and they feel exposed using legacy technology as an example. Um, the other example I always talk about is our professional services organization. And uh, we are one of the, the top firms in that area that gets called into a lot of these high profile breaches. And when that happens, we roll out our technology. We basically, um, you know, they're not generally customers when they call us. So they bring us in, we roll out our technology and find the issue, get it fixed. And they say, well, that, what did you do there? Like, what technology was that? And of course it's ours and they basically keep it afterwards. And, you know, we send them the bill for it. So that's worked out really well in terms of driving additional attach rates. But I think by and large, I mean, that, that's a smaller percent of, of what attaches in our, in our um, uh, you know, quarterly uh, wins. But really the driver is security is so important. It's at the board level and you don't want to be exposed. George Kurtz, thank you very much. George Kurtz is the founder and CEO of CrowdStrike, uh, just an interesting business that's really uh, dominant in the cybersecurity industry. Glad to have you on. And when the drill down continues, I want to talk about those modules. So it's interesting how many of their customers get four or more modules. It's a lot of them. We'll talk about how what that percentage is. You can guess right now. We'll have that answer when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to the drill down in your smart speaker. Just turn to that smart speaker and say, hey, smart speaker, play the drill down podcast. Enjoy the results. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at drill down pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, back with the drill down bite. That one number that tells us a whole lot. CrowdStrike is an interesting business because even when it gets into a customer and they buy a bunch of modules, they've got the opportunity to sell more and more and more already. And here's that number. The customers that have four modules or more, 66%, uh, according to an August investor presentation from the company, 66% have four or more. If you go up to six or more, Isaac, it's 29%. So if we call it a little bit under a third, shows kind of the upsell opportunity they have with existing customers, even as they bring a lot more customers in the door. Yeah. All right. Well, we appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.